Next, in uh, Bobby versus Bias, uh, Mr. Miser. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Three separate lines of double jeopardy analysis lead independently to the conclusion that the double jeopardy clause permits the Ohio Post-Conviction Court to hold a hearing to determine whether Mr. Bias is mentally retarded for purposes of Atkins. First, there has been no acquittal in this case. Second, there is no successive jeopardy. And third, even if collateral estoppel analysis applies under Ash versus Swenson, the Atkins issue has not actually and necessarily been decided. Each of these factors shows that the Ohio Court's decision to go forward with the Atkins hearing was reasonable, and this Court therefore should, consistent with EDPA, give the Ohio Courts their first chance to adjudicate Mr. Bias's Atkins claim. Much of the dispute in this case centers on the party's disagreement over the meaning of Ash versus Swenson and its application. But Mr. Bias cannot benefit from Ash because Ash, the Ash collateral estoppel rule only operates to benefit defendants who have in hand an earlier acquittal. And Mr. Bias has never been acquitted of the death penalty in any sense of the word. This court, beginning in Bullington and extending through Satizan, has defined an acquittal in the death penalty context as a finding by the sentencer that the death, that the sentence of death is warranted in the particular case. And the, the jury and the trial judge in this case agreed that death was warranted, and in fact, the Ohio Supreme Court and every reviewing court has agreed that death was warranted. But they all agreed uh, that he was mentally retarded and that was a mitigator. They all agreed to that. So, uh, assuming you're right on issue preclusion, what more? The state says, yes, we, we recognize mental retardation means you can't administer the death penalty. But what would the state show at an Atkins hearing that is not already in the record of this case? I mean, why do it again? The reason to do it again, Your Honor, is because the, the standard set forth by the Ohio Supreme Court in Lot when it was implementing this Court's decision at Atkins uh, contained three definitions, three elements of the Atkins definition, of the definition of mental retardation. And those three elements were not carefully demonstrated by Dr. Winter. And in fact, the, the record here, it, the Ohio Post-Conviction Court has concluded, doesn't suffice to make the post-Atkins lot determination. The, uh, at, at pages 101A to 104A of the petition appendix, the State Post-Conviction Court looks at all of the evidence, uh, including Dr. Winter's testimony, and says that there needs to be a hearing in, uh, it, where experts will be called in order to determine whether Mr. Bias not only suffers from significant uh, intellectual limitations, which includes IQ, but there's conflicting IQ evidence in the record. It also includes findings that he suffers from substantial limitations in adaptive skills, the skills needed for daily life, which Dr. Winter never specifically spoke about. She spoke only about uh, IQ when she was talking about mental retardation. And finally, I don't want to take you too far outside the record, and you can come back to it. But I, I, I just have this question: uh, Suppose that in a jury case, the jury, pre-Atkins, uh, the jury says we find that the defendant has a 65 IQ, but that in light of the heinous nature of the offense, this is not a mitigating factor, and that he should be sentenced to death. Uh, in a subsequent Atkins proceeding, can the jury finding with reference to the IQ be conclusive? Uh, 
No, it or, can't. Or must that be reopened? It can't, Your Honor, for two reasons. Can One, can be reopened. It, it can be, yes, I'm sorry. It can't be preclusive. It can be reopened for two reasons. One relating to the definition of mental retardation post-Atkins and the other relating to the different issues. First, with respect to the definition, the Ohio Supreme Court has made clear in lot that IQ is not enough to determine mental retardation. In fact, the, the clinicians and the American Association of Mental Retardation say that uh, IQ is not enough, particularly in a borderline case where IQ is close to the line, and there you need to look very carefully at adaptive skills. Moreover, but if could, the, could the defendant argue the, uh, that or the accused uh, argue that at least as to the finding of the 65 IQ, that that is a given, and and that that issue, i.e., the level of IQ, cannot be relitigated. The number. And the answer to that is no, Your Honor, for issue-preclusive purposes, because the issue is completely different in the mitigation context from the post-Atkins context. And I think that difference is highlighted by the difference between Penry and Atkins. Pre-Atkins, what the sentencer was talking about, the jury and then the Ohio Supreme Court when it affirmed, was what this Court told it to talk about in Penry. It was talking about mental retardation as a mitigating factor. And the State of Ohio and the Ohio courts had no definition of mental retardation pre-Atkins. In fact, I think if there had been a definition, and if the courts had excluded evidence from the jury, if it didn't rise to a certain level of severity, then we would have run into a, a post a Penry and Tenard problem. And so all of the evidence was allowed in. And it was treated as mitigating. And so what the Ohio Supreme Court was doing was what Penry told it to do, considering mitigating evidence of mental retardation. But post-Atkins, the inquiry is very different because Atkins effectively constitutionalized a, a clinical judgment in, make, in, in defining a categorical bar on uh, executing the mentally retarded. And so post-Atkins, it's necessary to be very careful about the clinical judgment and this record does not suffice for that clinical judgment. And I think, think it does not behoove either party to suggest. Well, when you say the clinical judgment, you mean the specific finding of 65 IQ? The, the clinical judgment that I refer to, Your Honor, is that required by, by lot that looks not only at IQ, but also at the adaptive skills limit. Okay. I, I grant you that under, under the earlier case, the 65 IQ was not dispositive. And, I mean, that was the, the, the case in Justice Kennedy's hypothetical. But it was necessary under the earlier case to come to a determination of what the IQ was, even though that determination was not dispositive of the result. And because it was necessary to come to a determination, why shouldn't there be a preclusion? Because, Your Honor, I think there are two different meanings of necessary. Uh, it, was, it was necessary in the sense that it had to be done, but it wasn't necessary in the issue-preclusive offense because it, it wasn't — It wasn't necessary to reach that particular — in other words, the determination of 65 was not necessary to reach the conclusion that they reached. Correct. It, and you're, you're saying the very fact that it was not dispositive of the result means that it cannot be preclusive now. That's correct, okay. Your Honor. And, and — may, may I ask how it — worked pre-Atkins when mental retardation was a mitigator. Uh, we're told that the appellate courts independently review. We have a finding at the trial level that, yes, there's a mitigator mental retardation, but it doesn't overcome the aggravator, so the jury comes in with a death sentence. Then on uh, the appellate level, 
Is there a continuing adversary con- uh, contest about whether retardation exists and therefore is a mitigator, or is it just the the judge, the appellate judge, looking over the record that has been made at trial? The the appellate courts engage in a de novo review of the record, and new new evidence doesn't come into the record on direct review. But there is still argument. The parties are still in an adversarial posture. So, so that the prosecutor could still argue that was unreasonable for them to find mental retardation. So there shouldn't be that mitigator. That's correct, Your Honor. But there wasn't at the time a, a great deal of incentive to litigate that question because the Ohio Supreme Court had said that mental retardation only merited some weight in mitigation. And, in fact, the, the appellate briefs on direct review are in the joint appendix and uh, expert, excerpts of those briefs. And Mr. Bias himself on direct review didn't vigorously argue his mental retardation evidence. And, he's, in fact, he said that the arguably, in his words, the, the most persuasive mitigating evidence was his lack of a prior record and his lack of a, a prior violent history. And so none of the parties thought that mental, mental retardation in 1992 through 1996 was very persuasive because the courts didn't treat it and the jury didn't pers- treat, treat it as very persuasive, P- perhaps for the reasons that this court underscored in Atkins, where the court said that, uh, as it had said in Penry, that mental retardation evidence uh, presented to a jury in mitigation could be a two-edged sword because some jurors might perceive and the prosecutor might argue that that evidence uh, went to future dangerousness. And therefore, the, the state of Ohio argued that the mental retardation evidence here uh, was simply not persuasive and it was outweighed by the, the aggravating factors that the jury had found. Atkins told the, the yeah, state interrupt courts, r- right there, Mr. Miser. Um, is it fair to interpret the jury's decision to oppose the death penalty as having found that he was not mentally retarded and therefore was not a mitigating factor, or that even though he was mitigated, a mitigating factor, the aggravating factors outweigh that factor? I think, Your Honor, that it's fairest, and, and the record that's, that's easiest to go by is what the Ohio Supreme Court said, because the jury didn't make any specific remarks about mental retardation as a mitigator. The Ohio Supreme Court did. But the, uh, the jury's verdict and then the Ohio Supreme Court's affirmance should best be read as a determination that the uh, aggravating factors outweighed the mitigating factors beyond a reasonable doubt, and that mental retardation was one of those mitigating factors. But it should not be read as a mini-verdict on the existence of uh, or the question of whether Mr. Bias is mentally retarded. Because How did, th- they didn't make a finding on mental retardation. How, how could the appellate court determine that it was a mitigator but overwhelmed by the aggravating? Well, what did the judge charge the jury about mitigators and aggravators? The judge charged the jury that... Uh, First of all, Your Honor, the mitigating evidence introduced by Mr. Bias was not extensive. He he introduced an unsworn statement by himself, and then Dr. Winter testified, and that was the extent of the case of mitigation. So the jury uh, was charged with the various statutory mitigating factors in Ohio, which is found in uh, Ohio Revised Code 2929.04. The mental retardation evidence was relevant under two of those uh, mitigating statutory factors. One, factor three, which went to mental disease or defect, and then the catch-all, factor seven. 
But the — but I think Poland helps to uh, illuminate what the — not only what the jury was doing, but also what the Ohio Supreme Court was doing when it well, — First, go back to the jury. How do we know that the jury found mental retardation as a mitigator? We don't, Your Honor. All that we know is that the jury determined that the aggravating factors outweighed the mitigators beyond a reasonable doubt. But we, what we do know, and what the Sixth, Sixth Circuit hung its hat on, was the uh, statement by the Ohio Supreme Court on direct review that Mr. Bias's mental retardation merits weight in mitigation. Poland explains that, that that statement by the Ohio Supreme Court should not be treated as a mini-verdict on the mitigating factor, but instead uh, — it should be read as an Eighth Amendment-required marking of the guidepost, the very guidepost that this Court in Penry said must be marked, the relevance of mitigating evidence of mental retardation. But, but Poland says it's wrong to think of that marking of that Eighth Amendment guidepost as a mini-verdict on mental retardation. Instead, it should just be thought of as uh, one of the, the factors that was bounding the discretion of the sentencer. And so Poland instructs that Mr. Bias and the Sixth Circuit are wrong to think of mental retardation as actually having been found in some sense that affords preclusive effect, because instead it was just an Eighth Amendment balancing. And instead, what Atkins tells us is that the state of Ohio, just as the states were given the opportunity after Ford v. Wainwright in the insanity context, should be given the opportunity for the very first time in this case to implement Atkins to determine, given clinical expert judgment, whether or not Mr. Bias is, in fact, mentally retarded under the three-part. I understand the argument that the uh, issues are not quite the same. The Atkins issue of mental retardation is not quite the same as the issue that was litigated. Let's try and get that out of the case. I think that's where Justice Kennedy was going. Uh, Suppose it was a gun case, and the Supreme Court originally, you thought you vect people, sell drugs, simple possession of a gun, as a finding, because it's a bench trial, that he simply possessed but did not otherwise use the gun, then the Supreme Court holds that that isn't enough under the statute. So now the state wants to argue, because the proceeding on appeal or whatever is still going on, we want a second shot at this. We want to show he did more than simply possess. Is the state bound by what it previously lost on, or because the state can get, get a second shot? The answer is that the state is not bound for two reasons, the first relating to issue preclusion and the second relating to uh, the double jeopardy doctrine in Ash. On issue preclusion, the, the finding with respect to the gun uh, doesn't carry preclusive effect because this Court said in Sunan and other cases that when there is a, a change in legal consequences, that change is enough to prevent the operation of preclusive rules. But on the double jeopardy doctrine, no, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not going to go into double jeopardy. I don't think necessarily uh, that it's double jeopardy that, that is relevant here. I, but I have a, uh, have you run into this in a different context? They wouldn't use the word double jeopardy. It would be some kind of due process problem. Maybe there isn't a problem. Have you run in your research to anything like what I described? No, Your Honor, because uh, it is important to remember that this is, uh, that this is a double jeopardy case because of Ash and because this is in federal habeas. And with respect to your question about due process 
uh, or, um, or other rules aside from due process, it's possible that the state could have more expansive uh, common law or state law interpretations of the collateral estoppel rules, and maybe those would benefit the defendant. This Court in, uh, in the Hogue case declined to use due process to incorporate collateral estoppel rules constitutionally. So in your case, the defendant would only be left with the hope that the state would have more expansive collateral estoppel rules. But to return to Ash, the defendant here is claiming that he's entitled to a constitutionalized version of collateral estoppel because of Ash, but he's not entitled to that protection because Ash applies only where a defendant has previously been acquitted and he has not. It also applies only in, in a case where the defendant is fake, facing a successive jeopardy of some sort. Now, Mr. Bias's sentence is, is surely at issue in this case, but it's at issue in the, in the sense that it would be at issue in, say, a direct appeal. It's only, there has only been one prosecution. The state has only taken one crack at convicting him or imposing a sentence. And that one sentence is what's at issue here. And so there's not anything successive about this case. And so the double jeopardy clause, either through the put in jeopardy text or through the acquittal requirement, simply has nothing to offer Mr. Bias in the way of assistance. Can I ask you about, uh, about exhaustion? What should we do about exhaustion here? I, I take it you don't, you're not waiving exhaustion. Your Honor, we're not contending that the Ash claim is unexhausted. We agree that that's exhausted because in the Ohio courts, um, it is not permissible to take an interlocutory appeal when a double jeopardy claim has been uh, denied, as it was in this case. And so we uh, are fine with the Sixth Circuit precedent that holds that in that case, the federal courts can act in habeas to prevent exposure to a double jeopardy. We simply uh, maintain that there is no second jeopardy here. Uh, but the Atkins claim itself is unexhausted, and the uh, federal magistrate that first dealt with this case in federal court held that it was unexhausted. And so now this case needs to go back down to the Ohio Post-Conviction Court for that court to do what it was uh, about to do, which is to hold an Atkins hearing for the very first time in this case. If there are no further questions, I'll reserve the balance of my time. Let, let, let me just, just ask. Um does it, the state have any position now as to his IQ? No, Your Honor. The, the Ohio Post-Conviction Court said uh, at pages 101 to 104A of the petition appendix that the IQ uh, remains in question. Dr. Winters uh, testified at trial that it was 68 or 69. She wasn't perfectly consistent. But other record evidence introduced later on post-conviction proceedings is not consistent with that. And so that still needs to be definitively. There was some testimony at one test was only 50? Uh, that evidence uh, is in the JA, and it was introduced after, uh, after the Ohio Supreme Court had issued the decision uh, at issue in this case. So that evidence is in the record. Um, but it is not part of the Ohio Supreme Court's finding, and it was introduced on post-conviction review. So it needs to be considered by the experts and, and by the post-conviction court when this goes back to Well, the state, would, would you say the state has an independent obligation to, it, to ensure itself uh, that uh, he has an adequate IQ? Absolutely, Your Honor, uh, in order to be constitutionally consistent with, with Atkins. But that will be borne out through the the adversarial process in the Atkins hearing that hasn't occurred yet. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you. Mr. Bloom. Mr. Chief Justice, may it please the Court. Uh, much of the discussion so far has focused on 
issues which did not form the basis of the panel's decision. The panel decided this case under 2254 D2. Uh, and what the panel determined was that the state court's decision that Dr. Winner, who was the testifying psychiatrist, did not apply the clinical definition of mental retardation, uh, informing her opinions and rendering her conclusions was an unreasonable determination of the facts in light of the evidence presented in the state court proceeding. And it was on that basis uh, the court went through the evidence and determined that, in fact, Dr. Winner had used the clinical definition of mental retardation in rendering her opinion, and that that meant that the Ohio Court of Appeals and the Ohio Supreme Court made a finding of mental retardation based on the clinical definition the clinical definition of mental retardation. Even, even if that's so, that's not necessarily an, an, an Atkins finding. Isn't that correct? No, I, I think it is. It's not as if there's Atkin, no. Atkin, we, we didn't determine what the definition of retardation was. We, we, we operated in Atkins on a broad conception uh, of, of retardation, and we came down with a general rule. But we left it uh, for later litigation, starting in the States, to determine exactly how that line ought to be drawn. Uh, we didn't know where the line ought to be drawn at that point, and certainly the, the clinical psychologist didn't know, regardless of what, the, uh, what definition was being used. And the Ohio Supreme Court, acting years before Atkins. Pardon me? The, wasn't the Ohio Supreme Court decision in this case pre-Atkins? Y- yes, it was. But and the- it was dealing with... Retardation as a mitigator, not retardation as conclusive that there can be no death penalty. That's true. But the, the important point, I think, that formed the basis of the Sixth Circuit opinion was that in Lott, versus, which is the Ohio decision post-Atkins, uh, in Lott they said we're embracing the clinical definition of mental retardation. But before you get to whether any, anything like that, you are urging issue preclusion against the winner. There was a death sentence in this case, and I am not aware of issue preclusion operating against a judgment winner. Issue preclusion is for the party who fought this out and won. Here we have a death sentence. So there the ultimate determination, whatever intermediate determinations might have been made on the way, like mental retardation exists and was a mitigator, the ultimate judgment is death. And I am not aware of, in all of issue preclusion, where a judgment winner is precluded. Well, clearly that is the more typical procedural context, and it happens normally in the criminal context of someone that's been acquitted. But the procedural posture here is unique, because what you have is a prior finding of mental retardation pre-Atkins, and clearly, at least according to the panel, using the definition of mental retardation, which is now in effect in Ohio. Then subsequent to that, you have this court's decision in Ohio, I mean this court's decision in Atkins, which creates a retroactive new rule uh, which says that people with mental retardation can't be executed. The essence of a retroactive new rule is that it attaches new legal consequences to prior conduct. Uh, so it is both the rule of Ash, which says when an issue has been determined in a final proceeding, combined with this Court's decision in Atkins, placing a category of people. But if the question is, what is the issue? 
and an intermediate finding, say mitigation, on the way to the ultimate conclusion, life or death, is not the same issue as if retardation is found, no death penalty. It's, it's the ultimate issue in the case that was before the Ohio Supreme Court is, do the aggravators outweigh the mitigators? That's the ultimate determination. And that's what would have preclusive effect, not the many intermediate findings that may have been made on the way to the ultimate determination of death. Well, uh, Justice Ginsburg, I think that minimizes or does not give adequate significance to what the Ohio Supreme Court describes as its role uh, in, on the appellate review. Uh, and they describe their role as being that they engage in an independent reweighing of the mitigation against the aggravation. A first step of that is the identification of the mitigating circumstances. So they have taken it upon themselves to identify the mitigating circumstances. And they have to do that by a preponderance of the evidence, which is the same standard which exists now in a lot proceeding. In the course of reviewing Mr. Bias's sentence on appeal, on intermediate appeal to the Court of Appeals, and then the Ohio Supreme Court, both courts found that Mr. Bias had mental retardation. It's not also, I mean, they have described this as an essential function of their role, and they also don't do it uncritically. There are other cases, State versus White, for example, in which they made an express finding that the individual had not proven his but mental I, retardation. In, in response to Justice Ginsburg's question, I don't see why it makes any difference which court is doing what. She, she, she raised two objections. Number one is that so far as the issue being determined in the prior proceeding, the characterization of his mental state uh, as retardation was at most a subsidiary, not an ultimate fact. Number two, the conclusion of that prior proceeding was that he lost. Uh, and she's saying in those, in either of those circumstances, the subsidiary finding is not preclusive. And any finding is not preclusive uh, uh, in, in the manner in which he wishes to use it here. And I don't see what difference it makes, whether we're talking about Court A or Court B. What is, what is your response to those two objections? Well, on the first point, I didn't mean that it necessarily matters which court it did. I was saying that trying to describe that, you know, usually the necessary part, which in some ways what we're talking about here, was it necessary, turns on two considerations. And the necessary, it's designed to determine, uh, as I understand it, well, one, was the issue decided, and two, was it decided with some care uh, for its significance to the proceeding. And I think given the unique way in which Ohio does the Senate's review, both of those concerns are satisfied. As if if uh, the Ohio court uh, had found, the, the, the court of first instance had found that the IQ was at some different level, it could have come out exactly the same way it came out in this case, couldn't it? Yes, it could have. So the finding was not necessary to the result. Well, it I mean, was I went through this with your brother. And he pointed out, yes, it was necessary to, to, to consider the issue and to make some kind of a finding. I don't know how precise it had to be. But the finding that it made, the, the actual number that was used or the characterization that was used to describe that number was not necessary in order, in fact, to impose the death penalty. Well, uh, and, and the sense of necessity, which is used normally uh, in, in this kind of preclusion analysis, just doesn't apply here. 
Well, that is not my reading of the necessary cases. I read the, the function that the necessary prong serves as trying to serve two goals. Number one was the issue, the question, the How issue. How do you say I, you have, you don't find that in the cases when you said to me, and I think frankly you were right, that issue preclusion, and in many, many cases on issue preclusion, is something that a judgment winner uses, not a judgment loser. And here, the Ohio, yes, they weighed and they found retardation, but they also found overwhelmed by the aggravating circumstances. So the ultimate determination of that, of all the courts, is death. I don't see how you get to elevate an intermediate determination. There are many. Some go for one party, some go for the other, to become the outcome determinative factor. The outcome determinative factor is that the aggravators outweighed whatever mitigators there were. Well, I mean, again, that is not my understanding of the role the necessary clause plays. But now on to the winner point. So if that is necessary, I don't think there's anything in Ash versus Swenson that says you have to win uh, on the ultimate outcome. It's do you win on the fact. If that's right, then let's imagine. But Ash is about somebody who was acquitted. He won. There was no doubt that he won. It didn't say anything about, well, suppose he didn't win. But the Ash rule is stated in terms of when an issue of fact has been determined in the defendant's favor, it's binding in any subsequent litigation. But if the warden is right, then let's imagine now Mr. Bias goes back for his mental retardation hearing. Uh, and the court says, uh, yes, Mr. Bias is mentally retarded. On the other hand, I think Atkins was wrongly decided. It goes up on appeal to the Ohio Supreme Court, and they say, uh, yes, Mr. Bias is mentally retarded, but we think Atkins was wrongly decided. The case comes to this court, and you summarily reverse and say Atkins is still the law of the land. Now it goes back, and the warden could then say, well, now that we know you're serious about Atkins, we want to reopen uh, the judgment, and we want another shot. It's not reopen. It's, it's the same problem. And maybe you found some authority to the contrary, other than statements, but actual authority. The defendant loses. He appeals. He says they made a mistake. And the normal remedy is you give him a new trial. Does it matter that it's a collateral proceeding? I don't think so. They go to the federal court. Judge, they made a mistake at my trial. You give him a new trial. Everything's up for grabs normally at the new trial. I can't think of an instance where it isn't. Here they're saying, Judge, they made a mistake. They should have applied the rental retardation rule of Atkins. So give them a new trial. Now, what I'm looking for is just one example somewhere that supports you well, that I, didn't proceed on the theory I've just announced or just said. Well, I, I mean, I can't give you a case exactly like that. But again, I think the procedure. No, I want a case even vaguely like that. Well, I, I think what you have are the cases. Uh, you have the cases which essentially are the legal equivalent uh, of insufficient evidence on appeal. Now, that's not technically an acquittal, but it's treated not as an acquittal. But what you have here, right, is a finding of fact combined with a later decision on the cate- establishing a retroactive new rule, moving people outside how uh, far, class. Uh, how far down do you go on applying uh, the issue preclusion? Let's say there's a ruling by the court that a particular expert uh, was not credible. 
I mean, is that binding in a subsequent proceeding? No, uh, Mr. Chief Justice. I think it would have to do one of two things. It would either have to absolve the criminal defendant of liability, which is sort of the common rule under Ash, or it would have to render him ineligible for the death penalty. Though the definition of acquittal used in Satizan is had there been a finding uh, which legally sufficient to legally entitle the defendant to a life sentence. And it is Mr. Bias's position that the finding of Well, that's narrowing it to your particular context. I would have as- assumed uh, that the theory has to be more generally applicable and not just applicable in the particular Atkins context. If you can have pre- issue preclusion with respect to an underlying factual question uh, under which the loser can, can assert that, I don't see why it wouldn't apply more generally. That's a theory of the double jeopardy clause, not of Atkins. Well, it's a theory of collateral estoppel, which is based in the double jeopardy clause, uh, which is what the issue on which the panel resolved this question. Uh, and I think that, that as I read the, question, the collateral estoppel cases, uh, again, and even in the context of capital sentencing and double jeopardy, it, the finding would have to be a, either at the in a criminal liability stage, would it absolve the defendant of liability, like in the Ash context? The, the finding was one of identity uh, in the first trial. The jury acquitted. The only issue was identity when this court looked at the record as a whole. And then they said, okay, you can't now, subsequently litigate the prior, the nuts crimes on the issue of identity. In the capital sentencing context, at least here, a finding of mental retardation is a finding sufficient to entitle the defendant. Here is your argument, then. I'm, we're getting somewhere, maybe. Pardon? Saying to me, Think of Jackson and Denno, that if you're in a collateral proceeding and the federal judge said there wasn't enough evidence to convict him under the Constitution, like the Shuffling Sam case, there isn't enough evidence. It isn't that he gets a new trial. The Constitution entitles him to acquittal, and therefore there is no new trial because of the Double Jeopardy Clause, right? That's correct. All right. So you're saying here, the evidence the first time was such that they couldn't give him the death penalty under the Constitution as later interpreted. So if that's what you discover on the collateral appeal, uh, a similar reasoning would somehow lead you to the similar result. Is that the argument? That's more or less the argument. And the panel- If that is the argument, then what is being preclusive here is not the first judgment. I mean, in preclusion cases, it's the first judgment that precludes. And we identify a judgment which is preclusive in the way we've been describing. But in the hypothetical that Justice Breyer gave you, there's nothing preclusive about the first judgment because the first judgment stands and properly can stand. And you're saying there can't be a second judgment, uh, but you are not depending upon a rule of preclusion that turns on the first. So whatever, whatever your argument is, it's not, it's not uh, issue preclusion. Well, it is the combination of the determination that Mr. Bias is a person with mental retardation using the same definition, according to the panel, which is now in effect in the state of Ohio, which would apply in a lot proceeding if he were to have it tomorrow. Sure, but you're coming up with a brand new rule. Whatever your rule is, uh, it's, it's not a rule of double jeopardy and it's not, it's not the traditional rule of issue preclusion. It is the combination of that factual determination with the subsequent rule, a retroactive new rule. I mean, it's unusual because there are very few retroactive 
retroactive new rules of procedure which place someone outside. No, but what your rule is, as I understand it, in, in your response to Justice Breyer's question, is that if there was a subsidiary fact determination in the first case, even though it was entirely consistent with the judgment against your client, that subsidiary fact determination can be used as a defense by your client in the second case. That's your rule, as I understand it, and that is not the rule of Ash v. Swenson, and it is not the rule of issue preclusion. It could be used if there is a later uh, legal ruling which means the significance of that fact would either absolve the criminal defendant of liability or make him ineligible for death. Well, you, do you agree with me that you're asking for a, a brand-new rule here? I don't think it is a brand. We have never held this, and I don't know of any court that's ever held this. But I, I think the reason you haven't isn't. Well, why, why isn't it brand new? Uh, is because of the unique procedural posture of this case. Well, maybe the unique procedural posture is precisely the reason that the rule is brand new. If it's unique, we've never had it before. Well, and I, we have the factor that you would preclude Ohio from doing when we expressly said, now, here is the rule. You can't execute the mentally retarded. However, we are going to leave it to the state to shape the procedure and what are the elements of retardation. You would take all that away from Ohio because in a different context, the context of weighing mitigators against aggravators, the Ohio Supreme Court said, there was retardation. It is mitigating. However, it was overwhelmed by the aggravators. It's an entirely different operation than state. Here is the rule. The procedure for doing it is up to you. Ohio didn't have a procedure for doing Atkins. It couldn't until Atkins was decided. And now you're saying, oh, Ohio, because you, in the context of weighing mitigators against aggravators, found this mitigator. You cannot shape the Atkins procedure as every other state can. Well, I don't think that's a fair determination of what the panel did in this case. What the panel said is, uh, number one, when we look at the procedure uh, and definition of mental retardation that Ohio has adopted, uh, it is the same uh, as the definition uh, of mental retardation, which was used by Dr. Wenner in her testimony uh, in uh, Mr. Bias's trial, and is the, that is the sole basis for the determination. And they said the burdens of proof are the same. He had the burden of establishing this fact of mental retardation by a preponderance, and that's the same. So, therefore, but on that the basis, incentive, the incentive is vastly different, which is an important factor in issue preclusion. That is, if the prosecutor thinks that there's overwhelming evidence of the aggravators, the nature of the crime. The prosecutor is not going to care so much about so this mental retardation as a mitigator. But when it's a difference, when the, the, the prosecutor wants to go for the death penalty and it th thinks that it's got a secure case on the atrocious manner in which the crime was committed, there isn't the same incentive to litigate as there is when it is the ultimate question, not an issue on the way to reaching the ultimate judgment. 
Well, I don't think, Justice Ginsburg, the, the incentives have to be identical. Uh, but certainly, prior to Atkins, the prosecution had the incentive to contest the mental retardation question. And, in fact, in this case, uh, the failure to more adequately contest it wasn't due to a lack of incentives. It was due to a lack of evidence. There were three experts that evaluated Mr. Bias, all of whom came to virtually identical conclusions. Well, this strikes me as the sort of case where their incentives might well be different, as Justice Ginsburg suggested. If you're dealing with a borderline case, uh, you don't — and you think you have very compelling aggravating factors, you know, why call attention to the, uh, uh, the mitigating factor of, of the mental uh, condition when your case can be won on the others? Well, I, I think for — Three reasons, Mr. Chief Justice. Number one, as this Court recognized in Atkins, uh, in cases where there was evidence of mental retardation, the jury was much less likely to impose the death sentence. That, in part, was part of the basis of this Court's decision in Atkins. Second, on appeal, uh, by uh, not contesting the evidence, and the State of Ohio did contest it here, you ran the risk uh, that the Ohio Court of Appeals or the Ohio Supreme Court would reach a different conclusion, number one, on the balance of aggravation and mitigation, or number two, on whether the death sentence was disproportionate. And the Ohio Supreme Court had done that uh, in several other cases. But here also, right, you have not only the direct appeal and the uh, findings, but you have additional findings and concessions in state post-conviction, where Mr. Bias goes in in state post-conviction and he raises a pre-Atkins categorical bar claim and says, I'm a person with mental retardation. Since this Court's decision in Penry, things have changed, uh, and I believe my death sentence is disproportionate under the Ohio uh, and the United States Constitution. In response to that, the state, number one, conceded mental retardation uh, and said, we agree, the record reveals Mr. Bias is a person with mental retardation, and the post-conviction court then enters a subsequent finding of fact. Did they uh, admit that. that as a finding of fact, or did they say that mental re retardation had been found as a mitigator by the Ohio Supreme Court? No, they said the record reveals Mr. Bias to be a person with mental retardation with an IQ of 69. Uh, it is not that there was, uh, we assume for the sake of argument, it was not uh, anything like a mitigating, it was a finding of fact uh, that Mr. Bias. It, it was an admission. It couldn't have been a finding of fact that you said if that's what the state claimed. Where is the admission of the state in this state post-conviction proceeding that uh, Mr. Bias is mentally retarded? Uh, it is in the joint appendix. At uh, 153, uh, this is actually the state court order, the finding of fact, uh, and it says, uh, findings of fact. The defendant is shown by the record to be mildly mentally retarded with an IQ of 69. If the, you told me that, this, that the state conceded that the defendant was mentally retarded, and I'm, that's what I asked you to I'm sorry. That, that is both at JA 143, uh, where uh, at JA 143, uh, the, in the state's motion response for judgment, the record reveals defendant to be mildly mentally retarded with an IQ of 69, uh, and that concession is repeated uh, in the post-conviction appeal at page 160 of the joint appendix. What does that have to do with issue preclusion? The state can't, it's not, 
that may raise a question of judicial estoppel. Is that constitutionally required? Uh, I think it primarily does raise a question of judicial estoppel, which we raise, which is, uh, and that is not a technical basis on which to grant habeas. It is a reason that the writ should be dismissed as improvidently granted. Now, uh, there have been multiple concessions after that. Uh, this was raised by Mr. Bias in his sort of, when he asked for estoppel, he asked for it on multiple bases. Uh, just as the fact that the, uh, the warden, the panel again decided this under 2254 D2 grounds. The warden did not raise an issue under 2254 D2 uh, in this court. But I, I'm not sure that there's, there's even anything that, uh, I mean, it, it does raise a judicial estoppel issue, but I, I'm not sure that there is a, a, a record here upon which a, a judicial estoppel claim could really be maintained, because in, in the, the, the passages that you referred us to, first the state's concession and secondly the, the finding which, which followed from it, there was a reference to mild mental retardation and a specific reference to an IQ of 69. Uh, I think it's a stretch, would be a stretch, to go from saying that a concession of mild mental retardation for purposes uh, of mitigation analysis should be taken as a concession for dispositive mental retardation for Atkins purposes. So I, I have difficulty in seeing the, any, any clear inconsistency in the state's two positions. The very next sentence is, as a matter of law, the law as it was then, such a person may be punished by execution. So, again, it's a, the stakes are quite different. Well, not in regard to this particular claim. The claim that we're talking about, where this concession was made uh, and where this finding was made, wasn't, this wasn't the brief on mitigation. This was a post-conviction challenge to his death sentence as a matter of law, saying it. That must have been, the page you called my attention to must have been pre-Atkins. It was pre-Atkins, but the claim was a pre-Atkins-Atkins claim. Was, the claim was not, was that I am categorically ineligible for the death penalty. And I am ineligible because since this Court's decision in Atkins, things have changed. No, no, you, we're back. What you called my attention to was pre-Atkins. It was the application made to the State Court before Atkins which put two sentences together. One was the record reveals defendant to be mildly mentally retarded with an IQ of about 69. As a matter of law, such a person may be punished by execution. This is all pre-Atkins. So one statement has to be read in the light of what was its significance. And it wasn't the conclusive factor at the time of that motion. Well, that was the claim. His claim was it violates the Eighth Amendment to execute people with mental retardation. This was not — this was after the direct appeal. He now files for post-conviction, and he goes in and says, look, I've been sort of tracking things since Atkins. States have adopted new laws. Since Atkins, we're, we're talking about — I'm before. sorry, since Penry. Uh, since Penry, there have been new developments, and I believe that a new consensus exists, the one that this Court subsequently embraced, and it violates the Eighth Amendment and the Ohio Constitution to execute persons with mental retardation. Uh, and it was in response to that claim that the state conceded the fact of mental retardation, and it was in response to that claim that the state court found, again, uh, Mr. Bias to be a person with mental retardation. That wasn't in some question of the balance of aggravating circumstances. That was a straight claim that you cannot execute me because I have mental retardation. 
Uh, and so I was really responding more uh, to Justice Souter's questions of judicial estoppel and was it the same uh, issue in this, and I think it clearly was at that time in this particular context. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Miser, you have 10 minutes remaining. First, with respect to the um, judicial estoppel arguments and the state's purported concessions, as Justice Ginsburg noted, um, the statement to which Mr. Bias points was pre-Atkins. And it, it, Mr. Bias's argument ignores that Atkins changed things in two ways, one consequential by enacting uh, by placing a categorical bar on the states, and the second definitional. So for the reasons stated at our, in our yellow brief at pages 16 to 18, the judicial estoppel argument fails for all kinds of reasons. But more to the point, judicial estoppel shouldn't apply here also because the state, whatever it was saying at the time, was not talking about the three-part post-Atkins definition of mental retardation in Ohio. Mr. Bias also argues that 2254 D2 is enough to, to uh, give support to the Sixth Circuit's grant of, the relief he, of relief here. But there are two problems with that argument. The first problem is that the Sixth Circuit disregarded the reasonable determination by the state post-conviction court that the Atkins standard had never been applied. The second problem is that we shouldn't even get to 2254 D2 because there are legal problems with the Sixth Circuit's reasoning that should have prevented it from granting the writ under 2254 D1. Mr. Bias argues that there's not a legal problem because there was an acquittal in this case because the Ohio Supreme Court's statement on direct review that Mr. Bias that Mr. Bias's mild to borderline mental retardation merits weight and mitigation was enough to entitle him to a life sentence. But that's not an acquittal, and it's a, a severe distortion of what this Court said in Satizan about an acquittal. Mr. Miser, can I just get one clarifying question? The concession at page 160 of the record, the record reveals the defendant to be mildly mentally retired with an IQ of about 69. And then they argue as a matter of law they cannot be, that you may be punished. Is it your position at the further proceeding in the Ohio uh, trial court that the state intends to argue that a person who uh, is mentally retired with an IQ of, of about 69 may be executed? No, Your Honor. The, this statement will be beside the point, and the question now post-Atkins will be. You'll offer a, a evidence to show that statement is inaccurate. Uh, the, the question uh, is... The question post-Atkins doesn't hinge so narrowly on IQ. IQ is one of the three elements, and so the, the experts on, on post-conviction review will now determine what his IQ is. I, I understand that. The definition could well be different. But is it, is it Ohio's intent to disagree with that statement insofar as it recites facts, that the record reveals the defendant to be mildly mentally retired, with an IQ of about 69. I understand you will argue that that's not sufficient to come, come with an act. But do you intend to say, to challenge the accuracy of that factual statement? Yes, Your Honor. As the State Post-Conviction Court stated uh, in this case, that sta- the, the record evidence pertaining to IQ is not clear. And so IQ, among all of the other uh, elements of the mental retardation, will be uh, up for determination. If there are no further questions, we would ask you to reverse. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.